frayed nerves in Zimbabwe right now, and I'm very concerned about the state of affairs, and certainly the ruling party is on the back foot right now. Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were started by the CIA, you know, were funded and managed by the CIA, you know, Hmm. Voice of America was broadcasting to, to Soviets. Puerto Ricans make the least, are provided the least, and pay the most. But Puerto Rico se levanta, and just as Puerto Rico rises, we need to rise. First, we need to rise from the devastation of our beautiful islands and rebuild our homes, businesses, and communities to be even stronger. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And today we'll be discussing what's really happening in Zimbabwe with historian and author Gerald Horn. And in the second half, media critic Janine Jackson says the Federal Communications Commission, which is supposed to represent the people, is just the latest example of a federal agency that is working against the people with a series of dangerous decisions. All that is coming up today, but first our headlines. Thousands marched in Washington, D.C. on Sunday to demand immediate disaster relief for Puerto Rico, which is still suffering with most of the island still with no electricity, clean water, or regular food supplies more than two months after being decimated by Hurricane Maria. Eva Marie Canones, a youth organizer for the march, was one of the many speakers at the Capitol. Our gathering here today is proof that we know exactly what democracy looks like. And we know that the current state of affairs is not democratic. Democratic systems are marked by governance from the people and by civic engagement. And we are gathered here today to demand government accountability and demonstrate our care for Puerto Rico. This is power to the people. This is civic engagement. And this is exactly what democracy looks like. The event's leaders outlined three goals for the march. One, to eliminate the Jones Act, which forces the island to use only U.S. ships for imports. Two, to cancel Puerto Rico's $73 billion debt. And three, to grow the economy while rebuilding critical infrastructure. Also related to the U.S. dealings in the Caribbean, immigrant rights advocates are outraged by the Trump administration's announcement on Tuesday to end the temporary protective status program that has allowed some 60,000 Haitians to temporarily live and work in the United States since an earthquake ravaged Haiti in 2010. Now, since 2010, the island has suffered through a cholera outbreak, as well as Hurricane Matthew that ripped through the island in 2016. The Temporary Protective Status Program, or TPS, allows those fleeing war violence, natural disasters, and other conditions, the chance to live and work legally in the United States. 
Elaine Duke, acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, said in a statement this week that Haitians who have been living in the United States under the Temporary Protected Status Program have until July 22, 2019 to leave the country or they will face deportation. The announcement follows a decision earlier this month to revoke TPS for about 2,500 Nicaraguans. Reportedly, these moves by the Trump administration has caused thousands of Haitians to seek asylum in Canada. And in climate news, on Wednesday, a U.S. district judge ruled that a lawsuit brought by environmentalists over the Trump administration's approval of the Keystone XL pipeline can proceed. The decision came just two days after Nebraska regulators lifted the final regulatory obstacle to the project. It creates a potential roadblock for pipeline operator TransCanada's long-stalled project to transport heavy Canadian crude to U.S. refineries. In response to the lawsuit being allowed to proceed, 350.org released a statement saying, quote, Here is yet another reason that the path for Keystone XL is far from cleared. Now the federal permit for this pipeline, which Trump made one of his first orders of business, will face the scrutiny of a court of law, end quote. And now we're going to continue our headlines and our conversation about Zimbabwe with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Gerald, so President Robert Mugabe resigned this week after experiencing what most observers called a coup, a military coup. And we talked about this last week. So give me your update on what's happening. Well, first of all, I'd like to refer listeners to the archive of what we said last week because it provided, I think, useful historical background for understanding this present crisis. The latest is that Wednesday of this week, the heir apparent, Emerson Mnangagwa, who being chased out of Zimbabwe in the first place some 10 odd days ago helped to trigger this crisis, he arrived back in the country uh, to stormy and tumultuous applause. You can find his remarks on YouTube But I have to say, I found some of his remarks unsettling because he did not call for reconciliation or conciliation with the Mugabe forces. In fact, he danced on the political grave of Mr. Mugabe, denouncing the so-called cabal that he charged to try to poison and kill him in August of 2017, causing him to be airlifted to a hospital in South Africa. There are many frayed nerves in Zimbabwe right now, and I'm very concerned about the state of affairs, and certainly the ruling party is on the back foot right now, because 10 days ago, the Central Committee and the party were united in their support of Mr. Mugabe, and as of Monday of this week, they were seeking to distance themselves from Mr. Mugabe, stripping him of his party post, which was a prelude to his being impeached and then forced into a resignation. The question on the table is, with the party on the apparent back foot, will that cause concessions to be made, particularly to the North Atlantic powers, the United States in the first place, which it seems to me bears a certain amount of responsibility for the crisis insofar as 
you can draw a straight line from land reform 15 to 17 odd years ago in Zimbabwe when land was taken from the European minority and dispersed, yes, to Mr. Mugabe's cronies, but many non-cronies as well, leading to sanctions against Zimbabwe that made the economy scream, leading to discontent that then helped to drive people into the streets this past Saturday, demanding that Mr. Mugabe step down, that is to say people in Harare, because a footnote is that two-thirds of the people of that country are in the countryside. Historically, Harare has not been a citadel of support for Mr. Mugabe, and that's where the mainstream press is cited, so you might get a distorted impression of the political temperature of the country. I think that your listening audience might be interested in looking at this crisis through the lens of gender. What I mean is that there have been serious allegations laid at the doorstep of Mr. Mugabe's spouse, Grace Mugabe. And I find Zimbabwe to be an extraordinary place. As you know, I lived there, wrote a book about it. Highly literate population. The economy of South Africa is heavily dependent upon Zimbabweans. However, one of the things I found striking about the culture is that when a husband dies, it's not unknown for the relatives of that deceased man to descend upon the household and literally put the widow out on the streets. And it would not surprise me if Dr. Mugabe, as she's called, Grace Mugabe, uh, 41 years younger than her 93-year-old spouse, Robert Mugabe, uh, would be concerned about her future and well-being and that of her sons. Uh, once he passed from the scene and feeling that the only way to protect her interests would be for her to be in power. Another thing that's striking about this crisis that I think all of us need to ponder quite deeply is the solidarity shown to these European farmers by the North Atlantic powers in Australia. Even though, of course, severe criticisms could easily be made about their racism, their recalcitrance, and compare the kind of solidarity that's largely absent nowadays, not only with regard to Zimbabwe, where the charge has been that redistribution and land reform went too fast, leading to crisis, or South Africa, where the criticism is that redistribution and land reform hasn't gone fast enough. So uh, the, the, the solidarity on the part of those on the other sides of the barricades is something we're all going to have to address sooner rather than later. And then there's the question of lingo. Uh, that's something we're quite familiar with. Uh, you know that the FBI is now targeting so-called black identity extremists, which in many ways is a takeoff on the charge by certain liberals that the black community is too heavily involved in identity politics, whatever that means. So language is very important. And the fact that the coup plotters did something that they did not call a coup helped to stay the hand of the African Union in terms of castigating them, helped to stay the hand also of the neighbors, particularly South Africa. So this was a coup of a new type. I think when the dust settles, I think what you're going to find is that the military, they cracked the heads of those surrounding Mr. Mugabe, in some cases quite literally, and it continued to address Mr. Mugabe as president and commander-in-chief which apparently helped to keep this from being called an illegal coup. I also found striking the Hollywood blockbuster elements of the coup plotters. Uh, you may know that General Chawenga 
was scheduled to be arrested once he landed in Harare Airport about 10 days ago. He got wind of this. His comrade soldiers came to the airport dressed up as airport ha- uh, handlers, baggage handlers. And then when the plane landed, the police moved to arrest Mr. Chawenga, General Chawenga, but his comrades took off their baggage handler suits to reveal soldier suits and then arrested the police. And then they moved into action detaining uh, Mr. Uh, Mugabe. Now, the next steps, of course, are a party congress that takes place December 12th, elections that take place uh, next year, uh, presumably. But it's a very dicey situation in South Africa now. And I see that the mainstream press is mostly reporting euphoria, but I hope they get to some of the issues eventually that I've just underscored. Yeah, I heard one report indicating that the incoming, presumed incoming leader has spoken favorably of kind of mending fences with the West and perhaps even reinitiating some relationship with the IMF and uh, Western finance that had largely been spurned by Mugabe. I've seen those same reports, and I would say that the situation is very fluid right now. I think anything can happen right now, and I hate to sound a note of pessimism, but just looking at the correlation of forces, the constellation of forces, the ruling party is basically on the defensive. They're split. They've been factualized for years now. That's one of the problems that helps to explain why Mr. Mugabe continued to hang on, and Given that state of affairs, it would not surprise me at all if even land reform was reversed, at least in part. Now, you should also know two other points. One is that, like Egypt, the military has powerful economic interests, in this case, diamond mines. And they were concerned that a new broom uh, sweeps clean, which is one of the reasons they were so hotly opposed to Grace Mugabe. And then the second point is, is that given the domination of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, particularly in Africa, what that means is that, A, the commanding heights of the economy are oftentimes dominated by non-Zimbabweans, non-Africans, oftentimes representatives of the North Atlantic powers, which, B, leads the Africans to scramble for a shrinking state sector, a shrinking government sector, because in some ways it's the only game in town. And that puts enormous strain on the domestic political scene uh, leading to this kind of crisis that has just unfolded in Zimbabwe. I also wanted to get your opinion about the the analysis that Grace Mugabe uh, represented a, a younger contingent of of the leadership in the country as opposed to the the uh, the her opposition anyway, and that they were interested in uh, I don't guess moving forward the revolution. I, that's the easiest way I can uh, describe it. Well, I'm not so sure about that latter point, but I will say this. In a de facto sense, what is being constructed in Zimbabwe is a gerontocracy, rule of the old. And I have to say, the more gray hairs I get, the more sympathetic I become to gerontocracy. But seriously, with regard to a country where such a high percentage of the population 
is under 30, and the military basically says in order to rule, in order to serve in state house, the whole positions of power and influence, you have to have earned your stripes during the Liberation War. That basically rules out anybody under 60. And certainly it helps to delay any kind of resolution of the succession issue. That is to say, who is going to succeed, who's going to follow Mr. Mnangagwa, who is 75 years old. Then returning from age to gender, uh, keep in mind that a few years ago, Mr. Mr. Mugabe and Dr. Mugabe were involved, along with others, in helping to purge from the ranks another deputy president, Joyce Majuru, uh, who had a better record as a fighter during the Liberation War than either Mr. Mugabe or M. Nangagwa, who both were kind of political leaders and political commissars, if you like. And I think it probably sent the wrong signal that the military did not stir when Joyce Majuru was purged, ousted, and trashed. Yet when the man, M. Nangagwa, was purged and ousted and trashed, the military sprung into action. Uh, there's a lesson there somewhere, if you ask me. Now, I want to uh, just touch on two other areas of the globe. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Saudi Arabia just real quickly because uh, I was listening to a report that talked about uh, the grand designs of Mohammed bin Salam, Salman uh, to in, in arresting his political leadership, uh, his political opposition, and seizing their wealth. Uh, and this kind of bizarre apparent abduction of the foreign minister from Lebanon, Hariri, that it's all kind of like fizzled for him, that uh, at least as far as his plans for Lebanon have kind of blown up in his face. Uh, Can you talk about that? Well, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who may soon be king, as you suggested, did serve to detain the prime minister of Lebanon, Mr. Hariri, and then somehow Mr. Hariri escaped his clutches. Things are exploding all over the place uh, as a result of the awkwardness and the political maladroitness of the crown prince. There's the crisis in Lebanon, that, excuse me, the crisis in Yemen, uh, where the war is now reaching famine-like proportions. The big target they would like to go after is Iran, but they're not able to do so on their own. They would have to induce both the United States and the Israelis to join them. Apparently, neither, as of now, as of this moment, are ready to do that. And so I would say that Saudi Arabia is headed for an iceberg. And if that happens, it seems to me it's really going to royal oil markets. And if oil prices do go up, it'll hurt those who are driving in their cars in the DMV but it will help Venezuela, Russia, Nigeria, and Angola. And that seems to be where we're heading. And then finally, there is, I guess, in the works, a big coming gathering plan for Sochi uh, by Russia to kind of as peace talks for Syria and kind of a gathering together of interested parties, all interested parties inside Syria, as well as Turkey, uh, I think Iran, And um, so I wanted to talk about that because, I mean, for people living under in war or under war conditions for the past almost 
going on 10 years, I mean, this must be uh, an important moment. It's also a defeat for U.S. foreign policy. U.S. foreign policy, U.S. imperialism, they have this nasty habit of accidentally on purpose aligning with religious fanatics and then ruining the consequences of that very same act. I mean, look at Libya, for example, where the United States allied with religious fanatics in 2011 to dislodge Gaddafi. Now news reports emerge about the selling of Africans in Libya, which will be coming to the Security Council soon. Look at Afghanistan, where U.S. imperialism shared a trench with Osama bin Laden until that relationship exploded on September 11, uh, 2001. And then in Syria, the United States imperialism aligning with the Saudis and their religious zealot uh, comrades and religious fanatical comrades. And that strategy did not work because Russia intervened, then Iran intervened, and then Hezbollah of Lebanon intervened, which of course goes to our previous point about why the prime minister of Lebanon was being detained so as to put pressure on Hezbollah and Iran. So things are not looking very good right now for the typical U.S. foreign policy, and to that we can only say thank goodness. Okay, well, we'll definitely we'll keep following, you know, what happens with this gathering in Sochi. And also, you know, we did talk about the slave markets in Libya in the past, uh, probably during the summer, but we'll have to revisit that. Uh, there was a, a video recently went viral about uh, basically showing the auctioning off of, of, a, of a black man, of an African man um, by, at a slave mart there. So that's what's um, brought the subject back up to the consciousness of, you know, mainstream media, if, if we want to use that word to describe mainstream media. Anyway, so um, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn, and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, Gerald. Take care. Bye-bye. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. and now i'm going to turn to this month's extended segment on culture and media with janine jackson 
media critic and host of the nationally syndicated show Counterspin. Welcome back to the show, Janine. Happy to be here. Well, as is too often the case during the past year, there's a lot happening or looming in D.C. impacting culture and media. But uh, let's start with updates you want to share from Counterspin this month. Well, you know, I did a bunch of great shows, of course, um, talked to lots of interesting folks. I just wanted to highlight a, a couple of them. Uh, a few weeks back, I spoke with a woman, Alyssa Peterson, from a group called Know Your Nine, and that's a reference to Title Nine. And she was talking about, you know, Betsy DeVos's effort to weaken uh, guidelines around campus rape. And she said a number of interesting things, but one thing she said specifically about journalists. I asked her, you know, what, what she felt about media uh, coverage, and she said, well, one thing she thought was that journalists, when they're talking about the, the question of rape on campus, they tend to highlight stories of white women, of cis white women, and that that gives a, 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 an un, inaccurate representation of, of how rape occurs and, and who is affected by rape. And mm. she said another thing, yeah, uh, and she said another thing was, she, she said the typical story of a, a cis white woman who's raped at a frat party, you know, is what tends to come through in the media. And a lot of discourse then an argument revolves around that, but that's just not a, a typical, you know, that's just not a fair representation of the issue. But another thing she said was that, and as a survivor herself, she said journalists will often ask her for her story. And she said, you know, I'm happy to share my story because I, I, think, it, I, I think it brings the issue forward. But like a lot of other survivors, I also have given a lot of thought to policy and to law and to how these things should be handled. And we share that with journalists too. And then you see the story and the policy part gets dropped out. You know, that journalists are just interested in the details of the story. And I thought that was actually very relevant uh, for the moment we're, we're living through right now where we're hearing a lot of exposés, but then what about policy? What about response? What about what we do? Um, and I thought that was interesting. And mm -hmm. another uh, thing, I mean, sure. Um, and then the other one that I wanted to to pull out was just from last week when I spoke to William Hartung about uh, nuclear weapons. And, you know, it's just this crazy situation in which the United States has like 4,000 nuclear weapons. We have enough weapons to obliterate the planet, and we're spending trillions of dollars to make more. You know, when you ask yourself, this doesn't make sense. You know, we look for things to make sense, and the thing is, it does make sense, and what Bill Hartung helped me understand is the kind of sense that it makes, you know, um, you have an industry, you know, it's what, it's no surprise, it's, it's profits, you know, it's an industry, um, but the way it works is that they, they sort of break apart the manufacturer of any given military weapon so that part of it is made in Nebraska and part of it is made in California and part of it is made in Massachusetts. And therefore, you have all of these representatives and, uh, who are bought in and invested into the system. And of course, there's, there's more to it. There's private industry that then has lobbyists that lobby Congress. But it just helps you to unpack a story that on the face of it just seems like nonsense. You know, we have all these weapons and we're making more. And you show the kind of sense that it does make, you know, and I, I love interviews like that that sort of, um, you know, pull the lid off uh, a process and show you what's going on, even though when you see it, it's pretty creepy and scary. 
When you spoke to the rape survivor, did she talk about what were the common instances of rape on campus? She said that the frat rape of the cis white girl was not the common one, but what was what is common? Well, she didn't fill that part in, but I think she wants to underscore that it happens, you know, um, it's, it can happen in with staff. It can happen to st- workers there. You know, it can happen to women and men of all sorts. You know, it's not it's not necessarily. Uh, you know, they're not there's not always alcohol involved. There's all kinds of uh, circumstances. You know that can that can be in play, and that it and it's certainly that it happens to to women of color at, at large rates uh, as well, um, and to women with disabilities actually are disproportionately likely to be assaulted. So I think she she wanted to just say, you know, she did not in the course of the interview say that, but yeah, she says she finds that um, the cases that are highlighted, it seems to fit a certain kind of mold that journalists seem to be looking for, and you you just wonder is it they don't talk to other people, you know, um, you know, what, what mm-hmm. contributes to that. Um, but what it winds up doing is giving an inaccurate representation of, of the issue. Well, you know, I think you, you related this topic to what is consuming the news these days. And that is the, all the allegations of sexual abuse, assault and rape that have come forward in the aftermath of Roy Moore and, uh, the, Senate candidate from Alabama, and then having the Alabama Republicans still support him. Even, I think, most recently, news broke that he was actually at some point banned from the mall. You know, it's almost kind of like, you know, a a Saturday Night Live skit, you know, the DA being banned from the mall for approaching underage girls. And so, in addition to the fact that I'm really concerned with these kinds of stories obscuring more serious stories that you're talking about, like nuclear weapons, like our other overseas wars. And, you know, I'm just really distraught about Yemen and and the the children starving and dying there, uh, assaulted by weapons that we supply to Saudis. But I'm kind of getting far afield because it's easy to when you see a story like Roy Moore and not to belittle any of the victims' experiences, but it's almost becoming almost a, a cover for more serious stories. And then within that, I never really see this particular story of Roy Moore, another, you know, white man from the South, engaging this type of behavior and having that related to this long history of cultural societal norm of there of white men being able to rape legally, you know, particularly black women and girls. And this behavior being legal, even up until the 1970s, I mean, not legal in the sense of, but unpunished. I had a long interview one time with Daniel McGuire, who wrote this a tremendous book called At the Dark End of the Street. And she just detailed this history, how it was almost a rite of passage for white men in the South to rape black women or girls. And it was unpunished. So if something's unpunished, of course, you just do it and it becomes part of life. And so I never really hear in an analysis in any of these stories about that fact of Southern life. And how it really permeated a lot of this culture in general. Uh, And when I say this culture in the United States. And this separate thing, and it may not be something that we can explore very much here, but as a journalist and seeing a lot of these cases in the media come out years later, seeing the price that women felt that they had to pay in order to get ahead in media or in Hollywood 
And that apparently, you know, many of them were willing to keep their mouth shut for a long time because either they didn't think it would do any good to come forward or they thought it would hurt them to come forward. And I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not blaming the victim. I'm just saying that it just talks to something that happened during even the Trump campaign when he was, there was this big expose about him coming forward on the bus, this, um, audio leaked of him speaking on the bus to the, to the, uh, reporter, refresh my memory, some celebrity reporter, right? I just can't. Billy Bush or something like that. Right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole big quote that turned into this scandal about, you know, he could grab him by the crotch, you know, he used the other word, by the P, right? And and they let you do it. And the thing is, I think that for a lot of men and women listening to that, they it's not that they approved of what Trump was saying or just dismissed it as locker room talk. They knew it was true. They knew that many women have decided that, you know, that they will be bought, okay? That there's, that there's a price and that they will be bought and that they um, that that's part of the game that society gives them. Well, I'm not sure I would I would take it that far. I mean, there 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 may be some women who feel that way. But I think the problem when we talk about these things as being about sex is that it obscures the fact that they're about power. That's what it's about. And mm-hmm. when. You said before, why, why don't they say something about it? And I think many cases, it can be career-ending to be known as, particularly in careers that depend on, and to some extent they all do, word of mouth, you know, like, like right. media. You know, um, you're known as a troublemaker. Nobody needs to explain it, but, you know, they've got 10 other people who can take your job. You're not going to hire the one who, who put up a fuss. You know, we can't remember what it was. She accused some guy of something. You know, it's... it's it, is it does harm women to come forward very often. And I think it's also another thing you said, a feeling that it wouldn't change anything. But I have to bring it back to the question of power. When somebody who is in your boss, who's your boss or your, um, or your partner's boss or, you know, your boss's boss or, or a client who you are, your livelihood depends and that, uh, on, on pleasing, on who can fire you, who can end your ability to make rent, you know, uh, okay, he grabs your he grabs your butt. You know, it's humiliating. It feels terrible, but the price is too high. And I, so I, I don't I don't blame hmm. victims in this case. I really right. think you have to recognize because and and what I would and I would bring it back to again that what do we look at as typical cases? One of the industries that is rife with harassment of women and in particular women of color is the restaurant business. Anytime you have a tipped industry where people's wages rely on the customer saying they like them. These women put up with no end of harassment uh, from, right. from customers. And they, it, you know, it, if they, they, okay, they can quit. And then they go to another restaurant and they're not escaping it. You know, like, okay, they can get another job. But it's asking a lot of people, you know. Um, and I think it's easier. It's a very human tendency to think, all right, I'm going to compartmentalize. And at this point during this eight hours, I'm going to smile at these people even as they make comments about my body because otherwise I'm getting less than $2 an hour, you know. <laughs> you know? Right. And it's something that a male waiter or server would not have to deal with. Yes, wouldn't have to 
to put up with. And you then add to the fact, what if you're working in a place where the, you know, the owner, you don't get help from the owner, complain to your boss. Your boss says the customer's always right. And also, maybe you could wear your skirt a little shorter. Maybe you could wear your neckline a little lower. You know, you'll get more money in tips. And that's your wage. You know, that's your pay. So I think there are cultural factors, but mainly factors of power that explain a lot of this and that get a little bit murky because you add the word sex in there. We need to remember that that's, it's not really sex in that sense that we're talking about. Right, right. When you said that, it reminded me of a scene in the HBO show, The Deuce, that just went off the first season concluded. It's a story about kind of the rise of the porn industry off of 42nd Street in New York. And at some point, a restaurant owner has all the women dressed in basically bodysuits. Like, you know, they like they have to go out in like tights in a bodysuit and that's what they work in. And of course, we know that we live in a world where there's a Hooters and those types of establishments as well. So uh, there's been a few things happening here in D.C. Last week, the... Russia Today, RT, met a deadline to register as a foreign agent. RT is a a, um, a government-paid media from Russia, uh, and they have the TV station Russia Today, RT, and they also have a radio station, uh, Sputnik Radio. And they were made to register as a foreign agent, and that was troubling in, in and of itself. It means that they have this designation on them as media, whereas other uh, public media from other countries, they do not have to register as foreign agents. In addition, they can have their private information subpoenaed. And this was all from the Justice Department. But in addition to all that, there's been very little commentary about this uh, or very few media outlets or journalism rights groups have come to RT's defense. What do you think about that? You know, the designation of who is a journalist is entirely political, you know. And so, yes, requiring RT to register as a foreign agent is basically saying they have to say they are propaganda from Russia. And I think it's definitely to do with the current Russia phobia moment we're living through. But it's it's just, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I went to look into that. It, it it matters very much because, of course, journalists get certain sorts of protections. You know, we, we um, you know, it's, and if you don't get protection and then you have to make your reporter's home addresses available, you know, I think you're, you're, that's a problematic uh, situation. But the reason that it's so kind of laughable is I, I decided to see what Voice of America um, would say about that. And I, I found a Voice of America headline that says Russia's RT registers as foreign agent in U.S. And then later, because of course Russia is retaliating, there was a headline that said nine U.S. funded news outlets could be forced to register as quote, foreign agents, close quote, you know, so they use foreign agent without irony quotes when they're talking about RT, but when they're talking about Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which are also state-supported and piped into other countries in order to give them a positive view of America, you know. Right, right, um, right. And that also do news, that all, some of which can be very good, just like RT, you know. But when they're talking about that, they have to say foreign agents because, of course, it's absurd that uh, America would do anything like that. Now, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were started by the CIA, you know. <laughs> we're funded and managed by the CIA. You hmm. know, Voice of America was broadcasting to 
to Soviets, you know, that they had a mission in the, in the 40s because they, their specific mission was to counter harmful Soviet propaganda directed against American leaders and policies. You know, they have very much a propagandistic function. Today, they are, I mean, I think they are analogous to RT. They are a journalist working there doing good stories, you know. Um, are they state-supported? Absolutely. Everyone knows it. You know, they're called Voice of America, you know, or VOA. You know. For a reason. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I just think it's um, there's something absurd about it. Uh, but I do think that U.S. citizens on the bright side are smart enough now. You know, we watch the BBC. We know it's from Britain. You know, we understand that. We're, we're able to consume news from a variety of sources and to assess it. You know, we're using our very own brains and we don't need a label uh, from the government. Janine, hold that thought. We're going to go to a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org. Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with media critic Janine Jackson about these rogue moves by the Federal Communications Commission. Of course, looming is a forthcoming vote by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, on net neutrality. And this is a rule that managed passage under the Obama administration after a lot of grassroots push. I mean, it's not like the Obama administration and his commissioners were right on board for it. You know, it, there were people camped out like, you know, Occupy down at the FCC for weeks. And uh, I remember the demonstrations and remember covering them. And But anyway, this is a rule that basically doesn't give these large internet providers uh, the ability to create slow and fast lanes on the internet. It keeps just our little website or, you know, on the ground show.org or, or counterspins or fair.org. It, it gives our users the same access to us or the, the ease of access to us as they would have to, you know, websites owned by these big media conglomerates. So it basically keeps the internet free and open to all. And so it's it's expected that this new uh, FCC commissioner who has been la- laying the groundwork to repeal this or to take this away is going to get his way uh, next month in December. It looks like that. It's an absolute disaster. And just as you say, it does, the winning of net neutrality reflects years of organizing, as a matter of fact, and a lot of it important work among communities of color for whom uh, a free and open internet is absolutely crucial in efforts to not just get our stories out, but to organize movements, you know, and so people of color and groups like the Center for Media Justice have been in the forefront of the push for net neutrality because it means so much to people who are excluded from and underrepresented in traditional media. That's where the democracy, if you will, of the internet is has been so critical, has been so critical. And so this giveaway to to companies is just a disaster. And you know Again, we were talking about why do we have so many nuclear weapons when nobody wants them, and there's this political machinery that makes it the case. And and here, 
too, we have something where the FCC pretends they are representing the public interest and they have these, you know, they call for people to say, what do you want us to do on net neutrality? And when they do that, people break the phone, you know, they break the, the website telling them that, of course, they want net neutrality. And then they turn around and do the opposite. So among everything else, it's a real failure of democracy. Well, we will definitely keep watching that. I don't, you know, when by doing these types of broadcasts and actually talking about it, whereas I think most of the mainstream media is not talking about it, we're doing more than just watching it. We're actually doing our part to educate people and kind of get the word out and fight back a little bit. I hope anyway. That's what I that's what I tell myself. <laughs> that's, that's right. I, so, I know, absolutely. And folks, yeah. it's never too late. I mean, I would hate, for, you know, organizers would, would kick me if they if I seem to be saying, oh, it's going to be done and, and that's it. And we should just go back to sleep. You know, we're going to keep fighting for this. Right. You know, um, administrations change, commissioners come and go, and, you know, public support, public opinion means something. So absolutely, uh, we'll be keeping up the fight. Now, I did want to mention one more, and that was uh, the FCC also passing a rule that basically allows this right-wing media outlet that we've spoken about before, Sinclair Media, to expand. And if all the pieces are put in place, it could control more than 233 local TV stations, reaching 72% of the country's population. So this rule that they overturned limited media ownership and it prevented one broadcast company from controlling too much media in a single market. And so with that, with that rule removed Sinclair, which has been, which broadcasts these kind of like Trump commentaries or (laughs) I don't know, you call them advertorials or, you know, news commentaries that basically give like Trump's view of the world as news, as part of the news broadcast, they're going to be able to spout this kind of information in two thirds of the local news markets. Yeah, this is yet another terrible outcome of the current FCC. And it's such a joke the way Republicans talk about competition. You know, the competition is everything in the free market. Right. And then <laughs> the they market. allow a single company to commandeer and take control of so much of a market. Yeah, this is a public interest obligation, so-called, that's been on the books for decades now that limited cross-ownership of radio and TV stations in one market and prevented the ownership of two of the top four TV stations in a market. You know, it was an idea was you wanted to have a, a range. You wanted to have a diversity of media in any given community. That was a stated goal, you know, and to have competition. So because presumably they'd be competing for stories, you know, maybe any, maybe the big company has a deal with the local hospital. So they're not going to tell you about the scandal that's going on there. You need another station to be there to, to get at stories that the one won't. So it's not only is it, horrible that the company that is going to get such a, you know, be so aggrandized by this is Sinclair, which is, as you say, um, sort of Trump TV. But it's bad anyway. You know, it's a bad decision anyway to allow any single company to control that much media. And particularly in smaller towns, Esther, because, you know, um, in some small towns, they may only have two or three stations and now they may have one. Yeah, I mean, I know as a reporter who started working in a small market, my first job out of grad school, uh, you know, it, it, it just really affects what is called local journalism. 
they can basically, you know, pipe this news in from one central source. And, you know, what happens to city hall reporting? You know, what happens to the, the you know, the, the city council or the, the reporting on the mayor or the town council or what the, what the county supervisors are doing uh, or the zoning commission, you know? What, and, and directly affect people's lives. Exactly. And reporters, you know, cut their teeth on that. You know, they really uh, probably look back on it and like really grit their teeth about it. But it's really important reporting and it's being lost, not just because of this decision, but because of media con- conglomeration and the loss of newspapers also. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. But, you know, and they when they say they're going to, they want to be allowed to get bigger, these media corporations, they always say, well, the savings we have, we're going to produce more and better. And they never do that. (laughs) You know, instead they lay people off, you know, instead they just double up and you get the same show on two stations now, you know. um, So, you know, the promises they make all are hot air. Well, art and culture is not usually hot air. Well, some of it is. <laughs> but, you know, we we might have a few things that we've seen this month that have uh, brightened the world a little bit. Uh, I have to say that I saw uh, a, few, a few movies, and the one I want to talk about is The Breadwinner. It's a new, it's in theaters, and it's it's a it's a beautiful animated movie. It's it tells the story about this young girl Parvana, and she you know how they make these animated girls. They're all these doe-eyed beauties, you know, the big eyes, and she's she's living in Afghanistan under the rule of the Taliban, and you know she's forced to dress as a boy to make a living for her family. And this is this classic hero villain because she's so sweet and her family is is so hardworking and so good. And then the Taliban, of course, they're they're depicted as the villains, these arch villains. And they're, you know, truly horrible in the movie. And I'm sucked into the story. You know, I feel for her, her mother, her father, her sister, her the little baby. And then I realized that this is all set just before the U.S. invasion in 2001. And I realized that by setting up the story the way that it is, it kind of ignores what has become the real killing field in Afghanistan, and that is from U.S. forces. And we've killed, you know, what, thousands of civilians since 2001. And now it's the longest running war and, you know, they're talking about maybe ratcheting up the war under Trump. So I, I, I had this mixed feeling. I love the movie, but then I felt like, well, you know, what, what is purpose is this serving? And I was left with a less than satisfactory feeling, even though I loved the movie and I loved her character to see a, a, a young girl of color in an animated, you know, rendered so beautifully and her family's story. So... That was my mixed culture moment. Yeah, doesn't that come with a lot? It's true. A lot of culture sort of leaves you that way. That's very unfortunate because I I really enjoyed the first. I just saw an ad just 
I think, yesterday for the breadwinner, and I thought, oh, that must be by the same person who did, I think it was called Secret Book of Kells, you know, that was a beautiful animated film. But you're right, when you, by situating something in Afghanistan and with the Taliban as the enemy, I mean, I haven't seen the film, and I'm, I wouldn't judge it for that reason, but if it gives the impression or even suggests that an invasion by the Americans is a way of saving, you know, this character that we've come to love, you know, then I, then I understand exactly what is worrisome about that. And it, it, you do, it is strange sometimes with, you, you, you want to just enjoy the story on its own, but then all culture is, you know, it's, it's situated. It's situated within a, a broader culture, you know, and you have to be aware of that. I think that's something a lot of people are thinking now to bring it back to the, we were talking about the, widespread um, stories or accounts of rape and sexual assault by famous men and people are asking themselves can I still enjoy the TV show you know with this guy in it you know I, I think uh, you know culture is uh, is murky in that way yeah Kevin Spacey was removed from House of Cards right yes yeah. yeah yes and people are saying, well, no, wait, when I look back on that episode, and you know we're not done uh, with this, you know, we'll be hearing more and more of these stories, and it clouds, you know, it, it clouds the culture, but I guess in a way it's just forcing us to recognize, you know, that, that these, you know, yeah, that we are, that, uh, you know, that these things do all co- coincide, they do all come together, uh, and it, what matters is how we, how we handle them and how we talk about them. So, do you have a culture note this month? Well, I can note something. I I won't pretend I remembered it myself, but I did enjoy seeing uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick on the cover of GQ with his blown-out afro, and uh, I just thought that was kind of a moment for... uh, for uh, people of color in this country. You know, culture does matter, and also such a victory, I think, for him um, in terms of what he's been trying to do with his protest about police brutality. I think for him to be kind of, I mean, some people would say, oh, now he's co-opted, you know, whatever, but I think it's more the mainstream coming around to, to actually respect what he's been doing, and I'm totally here for that. Yeah, yeah, and as part of that recognition on that cover, I think he was named as kind of like a person of the year or, you know, something, some kind of designation with that, you know. So it wasn't just the eye candy. <laughs> okay. Well, on that more positive note then, than all the horrible things that are happening, we'll kind of wrap up this segment for this month. I've been speaking with Janine Jackson, media critic and host of the nationally syndicated show Counterspin. She's also director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Thank you for joining me again this month, Janine. It's always a pleasure, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Professor Gerald Horn and media critic Janine Jackson. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Avera. Thank you for tuning in. And keep raising your voice. Peace.